If you're not there, I want to invite you to go to Matthew 25. Um, so the last, this was going to be a summer study leading into the fall. We know it would kind of overlap into the fall. But we're working now on 17 weeks of specifically looking to Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Well, obviously, as we said last week, every single sermon that's ever preached from this pulpit ought to encourage us to look to Jesus. If that doesn't happen, there's a problem. But more specifically, uh, we've been talking about this. In Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, as you look at Hebrews 11 and the, and the stretching of the faith of those godly people in Hebrews 11, we find here a very personal application in Hebrews 12. What are we to do when our faith is tested? Times of unrest, uncertainty, disappointment, disgust, despair. What are we to do? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us exactly what to do. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. In, in other words, fix your eyes on Jesus and don't stop looking at him. So what have we been doing? We've been taking snapshots. We took a little bit of a break. Snapshots of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Every week, we've been meditating on a, on a different characteristic of our God, a different portrayal of our Savior, Jesus Christ, through the Scriptures. Just to kind of point, out, point this out, we've been spending quite a bit of time in the past. So we've looked at Old Testament concepts of Jesus. We've looked at the Gospels, what it says about Jesus and how He ministered. Particularly spent quite a bit of time in John. The seven I am's of John. We've been looking at different ones of those. Well, I want us to take the next three studies. And we're going to kind of look to, look to the end of the Bible. Yes, we're going to be in the Gospels today, but we're going to reference what's happening at the end. Brothers and sisters in Christ, here it is. Jesus is coming back. I hope you're ready. That's the study today. Uh, we're going to spend some time in that. Matthew chapter 25, we'll look at this key idea. As our faith is tested, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. And there's this beautiful metaphor found in Matthew 25. Also other passages in the New Testament. Here is the description of Jesus. He is the coming bridegroom. He's coming. It's a very exciting yet sobering thought that as followers of Jesus, we must be prepared for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is referred to very specifically in this text as the bridegroom. So what's happening in Matthew chapter 25? Let's just kind of set the, the picture here of what's happening. Kind of take the big look here. 30,000 foot view and we'll kind of narrow it down. What's happened in the book of Matthew? Well, obviously, if you're there in Matthew, you find it's in the New Testaments of your Bible. In this section, known as the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the first section of your New Testament. For those of you who may be uh, new to Bible reading, this is a beautiful description of the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, the life of Jesus Christ. The the ministry of Jesus Christ, the selfless ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ. This is a depiction of the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is a description of the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
And this is a description of his resurrection from the grave. That's what's happening in the Gospels. But it doesn't stop there. This leads us to the ascension of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ preparing a place for you and me. And so from the onset in the Gospels, we have this. Jesus Christ came first to set up spiritually for his kingdom. And guess what, brothers and sisters in Christ? Jesus will return. So when you think about the rest of your Bibles, from the gospel on, the church is being established. God's children are being grown by God's Spirit. Um, okay, let's get back to Matthew. Get excited about looking at the big picture. Well, what about what, what's happening particularly in Matthew? Well, think about this guy. He's a, a former Jewish tax collector who became a, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he offers such a neat perspective of Jesus' life. He's writing primarily to a Jewish uh, audience. That's the primary original audience is these Jewish people. He's writing to them and now we're gleaning from what he said. And How did he write about Jesus? Let's just think about the book of Matthew in brief. What did Jesus do, or, or sorry, what did Matthew do to tell these Jewish believers, these Jewish people, potentially believers, about Jesus. Here's what he does. He goes through and systematically quotes from the Old Testament almost a hundred times in the book of Matthew. More than any other book in the New Testament. He's taking this Old Testament scriptures that the Jews would hold to. Uh, what's known as the Tanakh, the Torah, the Navaim, the Kitovim. They're Old Testament scriptures and he's constantly going back and saying, Hey, this Jesus, he's legit. Let me show you. He's in the Old Testament. He's writing about a guy that could be no one other than Jesus, the Messiah. That's what Matthew does through that book you have on your lap right now. Oh, right around a hundred times he quotes from the Old Testament. Not only does he do that to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the true Messiah, he is so meticulous. By the way, you would expect this from a tax collector guy. He's so meticulous in how he describes the miracles of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What's the thought? Not an ordinary person can do that. That had to come from Jesus, the Messiah. This is God's man. All right. How else does he do it in brief when you think about how Matthew is telling these Jewish people about Jesus, the Messiah? He does it through prophecies, constantly connecting to the Old Testament. He does it through miracles. And then he does it through sharing specific details about Jesus' teachings. In the book of Matthew, you have five main discourse teachings from Jesus. These are larger portions of scriptures where Matthew is just accounting directly of what Jesus is teaching. All right, you're like, man, you're getting to Matthew 25 sometime. I know it. <laughs> yes, I am. Here we are. Here's why I brought that up is because Matthew chapter 25 is the last of the main discourses in the book of Matthew. Of the fine made discourses, Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is the last one. It is given by Jesus on the Mount of Olives to his disciples. Sitting across the brook Kidron to the, uh, to the Temple Mount, as you can see it in view, Jesus Christ starts to teach more details to his disciples. And what is the hot topic? The end and the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Amen. What are they saying? You can look in the beginning of chapter 24. Jesus, 
hey, Jesus, okay, you've talked about being king all along. And, and by the way, next week we're going to talk about this king of kings and lord of lords picture of Jesus. Don't miss next week. But they're talking about it. Jesus, you're talking about this kingdom of heaven. All the way through this book of Matthew. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven. You're seeing this kingdom God is setting up. You're talking about it and naturally the disciples are kind of scratching the top of their heads and saying, "Uh, okay, when? (laughs) Okay, Jesus. We're finding more and more out about you, but when is this going to happen? And when it happens, what is it going to look like? And so in chapters 24 and 25, Jesus just starts explaining what the end's going to look like. He starts talking of it. He shares practical teaching, but also he uses these stories. These stories that probably you heard a lot of them when you were little critters in the, in the kids' groups, right? What are these stories called? Parables. There's parables. There's stories with deep spiritual meaning to them. So when Jesus is teaching about the end teaching about what it's going to look like, putting more pieces to the puzzle together, he shares some of these parables. And one of these parables he clearly teaches is found in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. And I'm going to invite you this morning to read this parable with me as we look at the bridegroom. It's on the back of your handout if you don't have it on your Bible or device in front of you. Would you join me? I'll read if you'd follow along. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Jesus says this. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. Some of your translations will just say girls, bridesmaids. Ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But but at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! And all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us for you, uh, for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom actually came. The bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was Shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And now here's the application of this entire parable as is consistent with the Olivet Discourse. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. All right, so what is this? What is the focus of this story? Well, very clearly, the focus of this parable is this. We are to be prepared for Christ's coming. In this parable, we have wonderful metaphor of the coming of Jesus. It is clearly, as, as we've talked about, it is the bridegroom. Um, some of 
the theologians out here, your minds are already going. You're trying to put pieces of the puzzle together. Your eschatology mind's on, on turbo right now. I want to just say this from the onset of our discussion. We must be careful not to manipulate this one parable for too many end times details. Please understand that. You can't take one parable and all of a sudden have a whole theology of eschatology out of one parable. You need to compare the scriptures, all right? But that being said, also, as we compare the scriptures, we need to be careful. There's another guideline here. When we talk about the bridegroom, our minds want to focus automatically on whom? Well, Jesus. But then who is Jesus coming back for generally in the New Testament? Ephesians 5, Revelation 29. He's coming back for the bride. Who's the bride? The bride of Christ, the church, right? So automatically, we kind of take those passages, Ephesians 5, Romans, or Revelation 29, and we just want to boom, plop it right there into Matthew 25. I want to say we need to be careful not to do that in this particular story. Be quite honest with you, the bride isn't even mentioned in this story. The focus of this passage, uh, I mean, is not the bride of Christ. Although this bride of Christ thought is incredibly wonderful and full of meaning to, to uh, our end times theology, this is not the focus of this particular parable. This parable is not about the bride. Rather, it is simply about the response of those who want to participate in the wedding celebration. That's who this is about. And to really kind of refine that, simply this. Some want to participate in a wedding celebration, but they're not ready. <laughs> we don't need to overcomplicate this parable. Some want to celebrate. They're excited thinking about Jesus. can come back. The Savior. We have Jesus pictures, and we, we have Jesus crosses, and we talk about Jesus all the time. But the fact of the matter is there are some that, that kind of hang out with the Jesus talk, they're not prepared. Some want to participate in the wedding celebration and are ready. That's this story. Okay, so if we're talking about the bridegroom, we need to kind of put ourselves, think a little bit of what wedding culture was like in the first century. A little bit different than what you'd probably envision of what's happened in this auditorium uh, hundreds of times. <laughs> wedding celebration here. It's a bit different. In ancient Near Eastern Palestinian culture, wedding celebrations were, they were a big deal. It lasted more than a day or two. Um, and, and to be quite honest, I think there's a lot of elaborate schemes what these weddings looked like. To be quite honest with you, when you look at the historians and you read the commentators and stuff like that, there's not a lot we actually know about these weddings. We can put pieces of the puzzle together, but actually one of the best ways to see what these weddings were like is to read the B-I-B-L-E, the Bible. It tells us some of the details. Um, probably the best description of, that I found thinking about this was from a commentator that I like, fell by the name of Leon Morris. And I'm just going to read how he describes this wedding ceremony, because right now in our minds, we want to implant ourselves in a first century wedding scenario. Can you do that with me? Younger kids, older, ki older kids, all of us alike. Let's think about this wedding scenario of the first century. This is what this guy would say. 
The wedding ceremony was preceded by a betrothal that was much more binding than is an engagement in modern societies. We talked about that when we were talking about Mary and Joseph recently. It was really the first stage of marriage this betrothal was. And it took divorce proceedings to dissolve it. At the end of the betrothal period, the marriage took place on a Wednesday if the bride was a virgin and on a Thursday if she was a widow. The bridegroom and his party made their way to the home of the bride. And, and actually, it's recorded in another place. It could have been in other places where, well, where they would meet them. But typically, it sounds like they would make their way to the home of the bride. When the two groups came together, the wedding took place. After this, there was a procession generally, uh, generally to the home of the bridegroom where feasting took place that might go on for days. The processions often took place at night when torches made a spectacular display. Clearly, this is presupposed in Jesus' parable, Matthew 25. The ten girls, Morris says, were involved in going out to meet the bridegroom, which makes it appear that they belonged to the bride's party. They were part of the bride's party going to meet the bridegroom in his party. They would then have had their place in the procession to the bridegroom's home for the feast. Okay, so now we're kind of in that setting. What do you make of this wedding scenario here? Well, clearly in Matthew 25, there's another piece of the puzzle that we need to consider. Here it is. It's a delayed wedding celebration. Think about that. It's delayed. That is a very important part of this entire parable from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's delayed. This delay is clearly symbolic of what? Well, the delay in redemptive history between Christ's first coming, when he set up the spiritual framework for his kingdom, and his second coming, when he will fully deal with sin and rebellion, and his kingdom, his rule, and his reign will be fully realized. All right. So there's a bit of pause going on here. There's a delay in redemptive history. And guess what? We're in that pause. We're in that timeout. That's where we're at right now. That's where you and I at Cross Point Community Church are right now. Without much eschatological detail or detail of the end times in this parable, the wedding celebration of this parable is a general reference, and, and take that into consideration. It's a general reference to Christ's glorious return to enjoy a united celebration with his new creations. Something that's going to happen, there's going to be a hearty party. It's going to be a celebration, and it's coming. That's what Jesus is saying here, but the delay's happening. Who are the key figures in this parable? Who are the key people? Well, obviously, who's the bridegroom? Jesus. Jesus is sharing this about himself. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus is the bridegroom. But then there's these ten girls. All right. Some of our translations will say virgins. And really, technically, they're the bridesmaids. They're the support people. They're enjoying the party. They've been thinking about this for a long time. They've been preparing themselves in a certain sense to this. 
Think about this. All of the bridesmaids, to a certain extent, did prepare themselves. Why? Because they all had torches. But they did not prepare themselves incomplete. The foolish girls, symbolic of those who were excited about the party, they like to talk about the party, like to think about the party, but they were not prepared for the party. The wise girls, symbolic of those who were excited about the party, talked about the party, and they were prepared for the party. Again, the basic meaning of this entire parable is when Christ returns, there will be some who will be ready and will enjoy this wedding celebration. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to realize this. There will be some who will not be ready and will not enjoy the wedding celebration because why? Scripture tells us because the door was shut. Okay, so this is quite a story. And what's it to provoke in our own hearts right now? I mean, as a proclaimer of the gospel, preacher, what's the motivation for this sermon? What's twofold? It's got to be. I mean, on one side, it's to incite some amazing excitement from all of you here that know Jesus as your personal Savior. Hey, the party's coming. It's okay to get excited about that thing. If you can't get excited about Jesus coming then they say your exciter's broken or something like that, all right? We can get excited about this. But the other side of this equation is this. There's some here that have heard about the Jesus talk. You studied the Jesus talk. You might have even heard about, memorized Jesus' words. Maybe you have a dad and mom who love Jesus. A grandma and grandpa who love Jesus. Maybe you've even done the church thing for years and years. In fact, you were in the church from the time you were in diapers. And you remind people that often. The fact of the matter is, there's some who hang around the Jesus talk a lot that are not prepared to meet Jesus. That's this story. Okay, so the broader picture of what we're talking about here is looking to Jesus. Keep our eyes on Jesus. So what I want us to do now as we close out this time, well, the next 20 minutes or so, as we close out this time, we're going to look at different highlights and details of Jesus in this parable. What do we know of Jesus, the bridegroom, in this parable? What about this guy, Jesus, the, the divine God-man in this parable? Well, let's start with this one. As the bridegroom, Jesus will come to guide his followers to the wedding celebration. That's very clear in this, in this parable. And actually, can we just stop right here for a minute to swallow this really good chunk of biblical meat? <laughs> These three words. Jesus will come. He's coming. I mean, this week sitting there and I'm studying this and, and honestly, my heart is so overwhelmed with this thought. Jesus is coming. The biblical fact is this. Jesus will return. There will be a future wedding celebration for God's new creation. There is a bridegroom who will come to collect the attendees. All right. All of those are dynamic statements. 
in the Scriptures, if you hold to the sufficiency of Scriptures, well, whether you hold to it or not, it's going to happen. This is clearly spoken of that Jesus will come back. I love how it's said in this parable. If you look at verse 5 with me, would you? As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the cry, honestly, I believe of thousands of pastors around the world right now. Through the delay, Christ is coming. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. I cannot wait for that day. I cannot wait. Actually, as Paul states, I mean, this week just thinking on this, I've been meditating on this. I found myself on several occasions. I've shared this on, on occasion. That I wake up in the middle of the night and my mind is going like 100 miles a minute. I'm like preaching sermons and my dreams and like studying passages and singing songs and all this stuff. So I got to get out of bed. So this week I had a couple of wonderful worship times from between like three and five. <laughs> I'm studying passages and I couldn't get this thought out of my mind that Jesus is coming back and I'm groaning for that. Jesus, come back. And God led me to this and it's not even in your handout there. Uh, Romans chapter 8. I mean, you might want to write down Romans chapter 8 verses 18 through 23 because it's not just me that's groaning for this. It's not just you. It's actually the entire creation is groaning for the bridegroom to come back. I'm just going to read some of these verses. Verse 18 of Romans 8. Um, Paul says this to this church. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be re revealed in us. Amen. Catch that. The suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. Amen. Doesn't even compare the mess of the world we live in right now. Those tears that come to your eye the yelling at the TV when you watch the news, all of the above, doesn't compare to the glory that will be revealed when the bridegroom comes. Amen. Verse 19 says this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the, the creation, but we ourselves, who have, the first, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. I'm going to read that one more time. We, grow, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Amen. The biblical fact is this. We're all waiting for the bridegroom to come to personally guide us to the party. And it's tough. I remember in my own life, um, we were married. I graduated in May from college and we were married in June, June 1st. 
I remember my senior year. I, I don't remember much at all about my senior year at college. Because I was waiting for the wedding to happen. We, we got engaged the August before my senior year. I was so stoked for this. I'll be sitting in classes often and be like, I didn't even care what that wonderful theologian teacher was saying. I'm getting married. It's coming. We started reading the Psalms from backwards to forwards till we got to one. And as we got closer, I can remember how distracted I was. I'm getting married. June 1st, 2001's coming. I was waiting eagerly and sometimes groaning. It couldn't come fast enough. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's the groaning in our hearts, but even to a greater degree that we're in a mess of a world right now. Anything and everything as you look around is groaning for Jesus to put this back right. I love this because Paul gives us some details of how this is going to look. Paul does um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So in my mind I'm thinking Matthew 25 doesn't give us all the details. It just gives us the thought that you better be ready for Jesus to come. I think 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us a little bit more about how he's going to come. And I think most of us in this room probably know this passage. I'm just going to read it. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are alive, who are left We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then one of my favorite, favorite phrases in all the Bible is here. And so we will always be with the Lord. Can't take that away from me. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Oh, friends, through the mess of the world we live in right now, the unrest, the uncertainty, the doubt, the discouragement, the disgust, the despair. Let us not forgive this. The bridegroom's coming. We who are in Christ are going to party hardy. The celebration's going to happen. Jesus is coming. The wonderful fact is that Jesus is coming. Do you know Jesus? So that kind of leads us into the next point. First point, rather encouraging. Next two points, rather contemplative. Here's the next point to look at this morning. As the bridegroom, Jesus expects his followers to be wisely prepared for his coming. That's a clear expectation in this parable. Can't get around it. Can't ignore it. That is the theme of this parable. Clearly in this text, Matthew 25, if you would look with me at verse 7. I'll just read to verse 12 again, 7 to 12. Here it is. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Hey, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourself. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, Truly I say to you, I don't know you. Man, what, what a provoking passage of Scripture. 
as we read this, we must remember, first of all, that we're to be prepared for Jesus' return. A return that could happen at any time. The sequence of events has happened. Jesus is ready. Uh, we should be ready for Jesus to come at any time. Jesus expects His followers to be pre- wisely prepared for His coming. So I'm sitting there this week and I'm thinking, yes, that's a great parable. But how? <laughs> Are you thinking that right now? I want to be prepared, but... Yo, Pastor Andrew, give us some some meat here. How? How am I going to be prepared? I'm glad you asked. Because I want us to go from this text to another wonderful text Paul shares with Titus, one of his sons in the faith. Titus chapter 2 gives us more detail on how to be prepared. In our minds, we want to go to verse 13 quickly. Verse 13 says this. Waiting for our blessed hope. Some of your translations will say looking for that blessed hope. We're waiting for it. Looking or waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So that's kind of what he's talking about here, Paul. But there's more to this paragraph. Hang on with me here. Can you go to verse 11 of this paragraph? Titus 2. Here it is. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Here it is now, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of, our, uh, the, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So what are we to do while we're waiting? How are we to be prepared for Jesus to come back as the bridegroom? Well, I think very clearly explains uh, this in this passage. First of all, we're prepared by experiencing God's saving grace. That really is the primary focus, I believe, of Matthew chapter 25. You have experienced Jesus' saving grace. Verse 11 of Titus 2 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing what? Salvation. Verse 14 says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us. How are you to be prepared? Here's how you to be prepared. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for rescue. You cannot be prepared to meet the bridegroom if you have not put or placed true repentant faith in the bridegroom. I mean, I I look out here and I know in my heart through conversations, my mind, there are some in this very room right now that are, are debating. Am I to put my faith in this Jesus? Is he worth it? And I'm here to say, Jesus is going to return. Will you be prepared? Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today. We'll say more of that in just a minute. But there's another part of this passage in Titus 2, and I need to go quickly through this, that talks about God's sustaining grace. How are we to be prepared? Yes, put trust in God's saving grace, but also living in accord with God's Sustaining grace. That means living rightly. 
as Paul talks about here. The grace of God, in verse 11, is, here it is. This is not a weak, watered-down grace, brothers and sisters in Christ. It is, it is strong. The grace of God, verse 12, is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So how are we to be prepared if you've come to Jesus Christ in saving faith? How are you to be prepared? Teenager, you've come to Jesus. Maybe you gave your life to Jesus at a camp or a youth group or with your family at home. You came to Jesus Christ. How are you to be prepared for the coming of the bridegroom? Well, followers of Jesus, as we prepare for the bridegroom, we are to stop participating in godlessness. Clear in this text. Jesus followers, as we prepare for the bridegroom, we are to stop being driven by worldly passions. Jesus followers, as we prepare for the bridegroom, we are to continue one step at a time, living, spirit-driven, word-saturated lives of self-control. That's in this passage. Jesus followers, as we prepare for the bridegroom, we are to continue living lives that are upright in the sight of God. In other words, stop fooling around with their morality and the sensuality and the addictions of this broken world. That's not me, that's Paul to Titus, his son in the faith. Jesus followers, as by the way, that's Paul to Titus, his son in the faith, but that's God Almighty through his spirit, through Paul to us. Jesus followers, as we prepare for the bridegroom, we are to continue living for God in a godless world. Don't stop till you drop <laughs> or till he comes to take you. This is so very practical. Titus 2. How would you feel? I mean, think about this. How would you feel if Jesus returned while you were disobeying him with your addiction? Parents, you know what it's like when you come home? Kids kind of scatter. Dad's here. Hey, guess what? Jesus is coming back. How would you feel if Jesus came back and you were participating in your addiction? How would you feel if Jesus returned while you were disobeying him with your pornography and unfaithfulness to your wife, your husband? How would you feel if Jesus returned while you were consumed with your phone or your game system or your TV and your computer and completely ignoring what he's telling you through his word? How would you feel if Jesus returned while you were floundering in your lying and floundering in your anger to your spouse and your kids. And the bridegroom comes at that moment. How would you feel if Jesus returned while you were wallowing in your bitterness, doing nothing for the king's sake? How would you feel if Jesus returned while you were enjoying your self-consumed recreation more than your Christ-magnifying salvation? Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is where the rubber meets the road. Are we prepared to see Jesus? There's one other aspect of this. I believe I'll make this quick. As a bridegroom, Jesus expects his followers to be wisely prepared for his coming, but there's more than that. It's more than just being prepared for his coming. 
What's the takeaway, the so what section from Jesus of this parable? What's well, verse 13? Watch. <laughs> there it is. As the bridegroom, Jesus expects his followers to watch for his coming. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And I put it, I believe, on your handout, chapter 24. If you go back to chapter 24 and look at verses 42 and 43. There's this concept of when, when you talk of watching, it's the concept of wake up. Honestly, that's the concept. Wake up. Watch means to be in constant readiness, to be on alert, to wake up. This is right in line with Paul's exhortation again to the church of Rome. I've already read a passage in Romans. I want to read another passage in Romans. It's in Romans chapter 13. I put it on the last half, the, last, the bottom of your handout to look at. Romans 13. Here it is. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. He's saying this to believers. Wake up. Why? For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly or honestly as in the daytime. Not in orgies or drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality or sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. How are we to be prepared for Jesus to come? Quite frankly, here it is in this passage is wake up and watch. This is a sobering thing that Jesus could return today. So what? So what? I said a lot of words today. Some of them intended to be very encouraging for your soul. Some of them to stir up your soul a bit. So what is this? Just ask this question. Are you ready? Are you ready to see Jesus? The fact, in this parable, when the bridegroom comes, it will be too late to prepare yourself. As Jesus says in verse 10, the door will be shut. There are some here today that have never tasted of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Quite honestly, I'm afraid for you. Please take that from a heart full of love and compassion. Would today be the day when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? One of the most famous sermons in all of history was preached by a fellow by the name of Jonathan Edwards. To his church in 1741 in Northampton, Massachusetts. You know the name of this sermon. It's called what? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He read this text. As he read this passage, uh, it was then preached again in Enfield, Connecticut in 1741. But as he read this passage, he preached it, but he just read the passage. There were people in the congregation that got up out of their seats and went and held on to the pillars. Because they felt like they were falling into the gates of hell. It's a pretty serious sermon. <laughs> we have a lot of patty cake type sermons. This is not one of those. 
In fact, this was the, this was the, the stimulus, uh, the catalyst for the first great awakening in the United States of America, in the 13 colonies and in Britain. Last night I was reading back through this sermon. And I, my eyes were super wide open again. But I came to this section at the end where Jonathan Edwards closes out this sermon and he says this, and now you have an extraordinary opportunity. A day wherein Christ has flung the door of mercy wide open and stands in the door calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking to Him and pressing into the kingdom of God. I'm a quick time out. I see this, brothers and sisters in Christ. God is doing something here in the 21st century. This was back in 1741. God is working in 2021. People are coming into the kingdom of God. And he says, A day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east and west and north and south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in and, and, know, and, and are in now. Sorry, he says in Old English here. Are in now a happy state. <laughs> I love it. With their hearts filled with love to him that has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. How awful is it to be left behind at such a day to see so many others feasting while you are pining and perishing. To see so many rejoicing and singing with, for joy of heart while you have cause to mourn for sorrow of heart and howl for vexation of spirit. How can you rest one moment in such condition? Oh friend, from the bottom of my heart, if you do not know Jesus, if you're not prepared to meet the bridegroom, how can you rest one moment in such a condition? Jesus is coming! To those who are believers who have tasted of God's grace and glory through Jesus Christ, the same question goes to you this morning. Are you ready? Are you ready to see Jesus? Are you living in such a way that you are ready to meet your Savior face to face? Close out with this. Uh, as a college student, my junior year when I was actually paying attention, um, there was a, a preacher that came. It was a Christian college, and he did a chapel, and my heart was so overwhelmed with this thought. Andrew, are you ready? I had two or three really good friends. One of them, Tim Handyside. He's a pastor of a church, uh, elder at church, preaching elder in St. Louis, Missouri. Another one, Mike Osborne, who I was texting him this week on his birthday. He's a pastor of a church, uh, a part of an elder team, preaching elder of a church in Dover, Delaware. Great, godly friends. And I remember I printed off this statement and slid it into my notebook. And here's the statement. Are you ready? We'd be walking around campus and we'd look at each other. Tim and I's eyes would meet and say, hey Tim, are you ready? Are you ready to see Jesus? Today might be the day when that delay stops and we will see our Savior first of all. We'll see Him face to face in line with this question, are you watching? 
Are you alert, awake, knowing that the party's coming? Just like that little four-year-old that can't wait to go spend time at the party? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time yet, Mom? Brothers and sisters in Christ, the time's coming. We're going to party. We're going to celebrate like no other with the King of kings and Lord of lords. So brother and sisters in Christ, friends, as our faith is tested, we must fix our eyes on Jesus, the coming bridegroom. That's our prayer, Father, today. Oh God, you know the anxiety in my own heart this week. Wanting to simply share the encouragement of this passage and shy away from the exhortation of this passage. Oh God, but you knew that today we needed to hear some tough words. Not just fun words, but tough words. And I pray, God, for that person sitting in their seat right now that's not ready to meet you. I pray that today would be the day. Oh God, I pray. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Friends, as you're sitting there this morning, I'm not going to belabor this. We're going to close this out rather quickly. I'm going to come back to that question. Are you ready to meet Jesus? If you have never come to Jesus Christ in saving faith, then I can assure you, you are not ready. Jesus says... God says in his holy word through Paul in Acts chapter 16, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be rescued. What if this was the day when you were rescued? January 17th, 2021, you come to Jesus Christ in saving faith. If that's you, don't delay. As soon as we're done praying here, we're going to sing an anthem of praise to our God and I'm going to invite you Come pray with one of our chaplains at the front. Maybe you don't feel quite comfortable with that. Don't delay. As soon as this service is over, come talk to one of those same chaplains or come talk to myself about this at the end. But do not go home with this unsettled in your heart. Come. Come to Jesus. For those who have come to Jesus Christ in saving faith, you pray with me right now that we by God's grace would be prepared for his return through the daily choices we make. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ.
God, we thank you so much for the opportunity we've had today to turn our eyes on Jesus, the bridegroom. As we think on your return, Jesus, I pray that our hearts will be prepared. When we think about this, it would not, our anthem would not be, it's all about me. Our anthem would be, yet not I, but Christ. As we close out with this anthem of yet not I, but Christ, I pray that you would encourage us to walk out these doors and shine glory the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ brightly. It is in Jesus' name we pray these things.